This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every Amazon purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark our special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We're going to look at a logical fallacy. And I'm going to expand a little bit on on it this time. We're going to look at some sub fallacies of it. It's a little bit a uh, little bit bigger fallacy, definitely more common, as you'll see. And then we'll uh, read through a cognitive bias and talk about that. All right, the fallacy we're going to look at. I'm actually going to use two sources. I'm going to use Hogeye Bill, but I'm also going to use um, a page I found at Lander.edu in their philosophy department. It looks like it's from their Introduction to Logic course. So I'll, I'll link to that and I'll link to the Hogeye Bill source as well. So the fallacy is argumentum ad populum or argument from popularity. This is also called the bandwagon fallacy. And there's actually some sub fallacies that we'll get into. So Hogeye Bill says the attempt to win popular assent to a conclusion by arousing the feelings and enthusiasms of the multitudes. This is a favorite of advertisers who surround their products with pretty models and various icons of popular approval. A couple examples. Lying on your resume is okay since everybody does it. And all societies require military service. We are a society, therefore we should require military service. So in these two particular examples, the first one, lying on your resume is okay since everybody does it. It might be, I would say it might be okay in some uh, normative sense. Like it might be something that's expected, but because everybody does it, the the sense everybody does it is not what makes it okay. It's not what makes it right. It would require some more explanation. And in the second example, all societies require military service. We are a society. Therefore, we should require military service. That should sneaks in there. Okay, it creates an obligation, an obligation based on the fact that most they say all societies require military service. That's probably not true. That's probably the amazing familiarity fallacy, which we'll get to at some point. Um, so just because most or even all require it and we are a society, that's not, that's just, you know, an appeal to popularity to try to say that therefore we should. We need more for that should, right? We're sneaking in an obligation fallaciously. Okay, if we jump over to, Lander.edu. They have a really, really long page on this fallacy. Appeal to popularity. So I'll read their abstract and then I'll go through some sub subtypes and some examples of those. It says the argument ad populum is an argument often emotionally laden that claims a conclusion is true because most, all, or even an elite group of people irrelevantly think, believe, or feel that it is. 
This argument is characterized here with many examples and shown to be sometimes persuasive but, no, but normally fallacious if there is no direct relevant evidence presented for the truth of its conclusion. Okay, it further defines argumentum ad populum is an argument often emotively laden for the acceptance of an unapproved conclusion by adducing irrelevant evidence based on the feelings, prejudice, or beliefs of a large group of people. It says the two main subcategories are snob appeal and appeal to the people. And here are some varieties. There's bandwagon, right? Bandwagon fallacy, which is an appeal to the majority of persons. There's argumentum ad passiones, which is an argument appealing to the passions. Argumentum consensus gentium, an argument based on the general beliefs of mankind. And argumentum ad captandum vulgus, an improper argument intended to captivate the populace. All right, so here's a, um, it says, insight into why a group's belief sometimes does not provide good evidence for the truth of the belief is reflected in this anecdote about Einstein retold by Stephen Hawking. He says, when a book was published entitled 100 Authors Against Einstein, uh, Einstein retorted, if I were wrong, then one would have been enough. Einstein indicates here that the proper way to show a theory false is to disprove the theory rather than recruit the opinions of others. Okay. All right, so here's, here's, a, here's one of the subtypes, snob appeal. The fallacy of attempting to prove a conclusion by appealing to what the elite, the noteworthy, the wealthy, or celebrities think or feel about a subject, which is outside their field of knowledge. So you see this, um, you see this with celebrity endorsements of products, right? The celebrity endorses the product. He's the spokesman or he's, he's in the commercial, and he's, a, he's an elite, a quote-unquote elite, he or she. Therefore, the product must be a good product. Well, whether or not it's a good product is totally irrelevant to the status of the the person endorsing it, right? The company is just knows that this person is well liked, is beloved in some way to some group of people, and wants to appeal to them uh, to to buy the product. So they they connect it with this elite. You also see this with um, when celebrities get out there and they talk about their politics or they talk about some political issue. Right, or they, which is common right now here in September 2020, heating up to the November election here in the U.S. It's you know a lot of these celebrities and organizations, a lot of the elite, are telling people to go out and vote, and they're using trying to use their status to influence people to do that. Now it might be a good idea to vote, it might not, but it shouldn't matter what some celebrity says about it. That's not relevant. So that's snob appeal. All right, let's go to the next one. This is bandwagon, the fallacy of attempting to prove a conclusion on the grounds that all, the majority, or many people think, believe, and feel it is true. So, you know, you see this, um, some of the best examples of this sort of thing are, are either political or religious. They really are. I mean, any time it's a matter of a, a large group of people believing something is true, and you find that, you find that, um, I guess you find it in science as well. You find it in religion, politics, science. Uh, whether or not a scientific theory is valid, it shouldn't matter that most science is currently accepted, right? This this phrase that these these uh, that people like to use that the science is settled to me seems like one of the most ridiculous things you could say in science because how many times has the science been settled based on this fallacy bandwagon? All or most scientists believe it's settled only for some rogue scientist to come along with some new theory that completely wipes out the old one. So this is this is um this can be something that is common in science and, and can be 
can be dangerous. It's also common in religion because it can lead people to to behave in very nefarious ways, and, and same with politics, right? I mean, consider the argument for nationalized health care. People like to say, well, every country in Europe and Canada has this, so it must be it must be good. It must be desirable and beneficial. Now, it may be good, it may be beneficial, but appealing to the number of countries that have implemented is not a non-fallacious way to make that argument. Rather, if you're going to make the argument that it's good and beneficial, then present the data, present all the data. Okay, what people have to go through to get the health care, what it costs, what it's costing the government, what, what it's costing taxpayers, um, what government does to people who don't want to contribute to the system. Okay, give me all the data, and then you can come to a conclusion if it's overall beneficial or not. It is sort of a, an empirical question. It's economic in one sense. It may be ethical in another sense. Put it all together. But to simply say it's what everybody in Europe's doing, that's, that's not a solid argument. All right, let's go on to the next subtype. Argumentum ad passiones. An appeal to strong feelings, emotions, or enthusiasm rather than judgment in order to establish a conclusion. So instead of providing reasons or evidence for the truth of a conclusion, strong emotion is invoked to impart belief. So you see this with, uh, well, in two examples I just gave, both with nationalized health care. It's, oh, you want people to die. You want people to suffer. You want people to, to go into medical debt. You want people to go bankrupt, right? These very negative things about people. Oh, you want these bad things to happen because they can't afford health care, right? Or you want, you know, the science is settled, for example, say climate change or something. The science is settled and, you know, it's, this is going to be a disaster for humanity. You want humanity to suffer. Therefore, you don't want to do something about uh, climate change. Uh, whether or not climate change is a problem for humanity is a separate issue than what, if anything, humanity can do about it. And what, if anything, government should or should not do about it. Those are, those are all totally separate issues that need to be argument, argued in their own non-fallacious ways. But to simply appeal to the emotion saying, climate change is real, it's going to kill all of us, governments, therefore governments should and have to do this, this, or that, therefore we're all going to die and suffer, is totally fallacious. It's obviously fallacious. But it, it passes from too many influential people's lips and it goes into too many people's ears <laughs> who believe it on the basis of passion. Try not to be one of those people. Try not to be either of those people, I would say, is my, is my plea. All right, another uh, sub. Add the argument, argumentum ad captendum, captivation of the masses, an emotive argument devised to appeal to the popular favor of an unthinking crowd, often used in advertising and political speech. It's, it's used in political speech. It's used, I don't know, you really, you really don't have the religious preacher standing up on soapboxes preaching to the crowd in the town square anymore, at least in this country. But that, that would probably be filled with this fallacy as well. I guess the equivalent of that today are, are the political speeches. Politician gets up, starts to make a bunch of emotional appeals on a bunch of different things to try to, to flatter everybody and to impress everybody that, that they're the one, he or she should be the one in power to bring about uh, the changes that they're promising, right? And you're, you're captivating the masses. And then as an onlooker, you see the masses cheering and getting excited about this. 
And it's easy to believe that what this guy's saying has broad appeal and might be true. It might, it might be good and right in some way because everybody seems to love it. Well, it might be good and it might be right, but not because everybody loves it. All right, the next one, consensus gentium, the general consent of mankind. The notion that some things which all men will be found to agree upon as right, real, just, or attractive, and that these things are therefore, in fact, right, real, just, or attractive. So with any, any notions like this, any beliefs that have been around for a long time and have the, I guess, consent of pretty much everyone, they may be right and real and just and attractive and good things and desirable things. But again, it's not because everybody believes that to be so. Okay, you need corroborating evidence. You need corroborating arguments to make that case. And you can look back in history and you can find practices that humanity that used to used to be more widespread among humanity than than it is today. And it was more accepted as just a matter of fact, as just an institution, as a practice that's here to stay. Things like slavery, where either you're a slave or you're not. And it's not a question of justice. It's a question of circumstance. And that thing has obviously changed. Now, there's still slavery in the world today in some parts. And there's different kinds of slavery. If you really want to get into that, slavery perhaps has just changed form in some ways depending on how you define it. But there are practices that might be viewed by everybody as here to stay. And that might be true, but not because people believe it. So here's uh, something related, which you may have heard of before. It's called Vox Populi Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. It says this derisive phrase attests to the disdain of the madness of crowds as reflected in such phenomena as hysteria of the speculative booms of the uh, Dutch Tulip Mania, Compania de Mississippi, and the South Sea Joint Stock Company. The central basis of this appeal is the assumption that large numbers of persons are more likely to be right than a given individual is likely to be right. Also, in light of peer pressure, many persons feel it's better to be normal than to go against the crowd. Moreover, our social desire to be approved by others often results in our joining the bandwagon of the probable winning side in any political contest or public dispute. The Port Royal Logic from 1662 describes this version of the fallacy as follows. We often regard only the number of the witnesses, without at all considering whether the number increases the probability of their having discovered the truth, which is, however, unreasonable. It is more likely that a single person will discover the truth than that many will. Thus, the following is not a valid inference. This opinion is held by the majority of philosophers. It is, therefore, the truest. This opinion is held by the majority of philosophers. It is therefore the truest, right? That, that, that doesn't follow. It simply doesn't follow, right? You've got to have corroborating argument or corroborating evidence. All right, well, that's going to do it. That's, that's a very interesting. I think it's very common. Argumentum ad populum, appeal to popularity, which includes snob appeal, bandwagon, appeal to the passions, appeal to the crowd, um, universal human agreement, and voice of the people is the voice of God. All right, I'll link to those sites. You can get deeper in those. Um, these pages contain a lot more than what I, I talked about. It really tears things apart, so I'll link to those. All right, let's jump over to the source we use for cognitive bias, which is The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf DeBelli. We're going to look at Chapter 26, Neglect of Probability. Two games of chance. 
In the first, you can win $10 million, and in the second, 10000 Which do you play? If you win the first game, it changes your life completely. You can quit your job, tell your boss where to go, and live off the winnings. If you hit the jackpot in the second game, you can, make, you can take a nice vacation in the Caribbean, but you'll be back at your desk quick enough to see your postcard arrive. The probability of winning is 1 in 100 million in the first game and 1 in 10,000 in the second game. So which do you choose? Our emotions draw us to the first game, even though the second is 10 times better, objectively considered, which is the expected win times probability. Therefore, the trend is toward ever larger jackpots, mega millions, mega billions, mega trillions, no matter how small the odds are. In a classic experiment from 1972, participants were divided into two groups. The members of the first group were told that they would receive a small electric shock. In the second group, subjects were told that the risk of this happening was only 50%. The researchers measured physical anxiety, heart rate, nervousness, sweating, etc., shortly before commencing. The result, the result were, well, shocking. There was absolutely no difference. Participants in both groups were equally stressed. Next, the researchers announced a series of reductions in the probability of a shock for the second group, from 50 to 20, then 10, then 5. The result, still no difference. However, when they declared there would be an in, there, they would increase the strength of the expected shock, that both groups' anxiety levels rose, again by the same degree. This illustrates that we respond to the expected magnitude of an event, but not to its likelihood. In other words, we lack an intuitive grasp of probability. The proper term for this is neglect of probability and it leads to errors in decision-making. We invest in startups because the potential profit makes dollar signs flash before our eyes, but we forget or are too lazy to investigate the slim chances of new businesses actually achieving such growth. Similarly, following extensive media coverage of a plane crash, we cancel flights without really considering the minuscule probability of crashing. Many amateur investors compare their investments solely on the basis of yield. For them, Google shares with a return of 20% must be twice as good as property that returns 10 That's wrong. It would be a lot smarter to also consider both investments' risks. But then again, we have no natural feel for this, so we often turn a blind eye to it. Back to the experiment with the electric shocks. In Group B, the probability of getting a jolt was further reduced from 5% to 4 to 3. Only when the probability reached 0 did Group B respond differently than Group A. To us, 0% risk seems infinitely better than a highly improbable 1% risk. To test this, let's examine two methods of treating drinking water. Suppose a river has two equally large tri tributaries. One is treated using method A, which reduces the risk of dying from contaminated water from 5% to 2%. The other is treated using method B, which reduces the risk from 1% to 0%. That is, the threat is completely eliminated. So method A or B, if you think like most people, you'll opt for method B, which is silly because with measure A, 3% fewer people die. And with B, just 1% fewer. Method A is three times as good. This fallacy is called the zero-risk bias. A classic example of this is the U.S. Food Act of 1958, which prohibits food that contains cancer-causing substances. Instituted to achieve zero risk of cancer, this ban sounds good at first, but it ended up leading to the use of more dangerous food addict. addict. It is also absurd. As Paracelsus illustrated in the 16th century, poisoning is always a question of dosage. Furthermore, further, furthermore this law can never be enforced properly since it is impossible to remove the last banned molecule from food. Each farm would have to function like a hyper-sterile computer chip factory, and the cost of food would increase a hundredfold. Economically, zero risk rarely makes sense. One exception is when the consequences are colossal, such as a deadly, highly contagious virus escaping from a biotech laboratory. <laughs>
Well, there's a, there's a timely example. We have no intuitive grasp of risk and thus distinguish poorly among different threats. The more serious the threat and the more emotional the topic, such as radioactivity, the less reassuring a reduction in risk seems to us. Two researchers at the University of Chicago have shown that people are equally afraid of a 99% chance as they are of a 1% chance of contamination by toxic chemicals. An irrational response, but a common one. All right. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, I guess. Why Why should we, from an, an evolutionary standpoint, why should we have any sort of intuitive sense of probabilities over uh, the emotional appeal? Uh, right of a of a ten million lot ten million dollar lottery versus a ten thousand dollar one. Right, you have a better chance of winning the ten thousand, but if you win the ten million, it's going to completely change your life. Right, so taking the chance ten thousand one in ten thousand versus one in ten million. I mean, I'm thinking about that right now, and they both seem equally impossible. Right, they both seem equally unlikely to me. So why not go for the ten million? This is this is also this is probably also why. Promised, uh, promised returns that are abnormally high from some investment is appealing to so many people. Why so many people get hoodwinked into things like Ponzi schemes, right? You're promised, give us 50,000 or give us 100,000 and we'll give you 4% return a month, right? And you, and you, and you see that happen for, for one, two, three, four, five, six months. you you see that return come in and it's such a high return that getting into it, it almost seems like you would be foolish not to. Plus, there's you know other people that are into it, people you know that are talking you into it. And they're saying, look, I'm getting these returns every month. This guy really knows what he's doing. He really knows how to play the stock market or play the nickel options or whatever it is. And the emotion captures you. And the idea of making all this extra income if I just refinance my house, take out some equity, give it to this guy, and now I'm making enough every month to make the payment from my higher mortgage because I've refinanced and then some. And now my house is paying for itself and I don't have to do anything. And it seems like that will go on forever. It's gone on for six months. It's gone on for nine months. It's gone on for a year. I've totally reorganized my life. My income level is higher. I've signed up for a bunch of stuff. I've changed my lifestyle, like I talked about in the last episode. And then reality sets in. The reality that the money you were making, quote unquote, was just the, the new money that other people who were being hoodwinked were refining, refinancing their houses to pull out and to give and to put in. And then that money was being used to, to make, to pay the people who were expecting returns that month. But eventually reality catches up and the obligations are not able to be met. And one month it doesn't come or it's late by a couple weeks. And then the next month it's it's late by four weeks. So you've waited two months and then excuses start to be made. Oh, well, things are happening, blah, blah, blah. And then it stops. And then you finally realize what's happened. You've been a goddamn fool for believing that you could win $10 million, that you had a better chance of doing it than the smaller one. And then you learn an important lesson about, about greed, about yourself, about how easy it is to get, to get wrapped up in, in something because of that emotional appeal. And this happens to a lot of people, 
right? I mean, just think of all of the people that were taken by that guy, Bernie Madoff, right? These were, these were, many of these people were independently wealthy outside of that. And they took a significant amount of that wealth and they gave it to him. Okay, what, what was the probability that this guy had it figured out and could actually generate the returns he was supposedly generating? And nobody else in the whole world figured it out. What are the chances of that? That this guy was doing this and nobody else had caught on, right? The emotion, the, the promise of a better life, it just takes over. Why is that? All right, that's going to do it. We looked at argumentum ad populum, appeal to popularity, and it's, and it's many, it's many sons and daughters. And then we looked at the neglect of probability cognitive bias. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast at everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash EVC or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you.